This is KSGF Mornings with Nick Reed. I'm Dr. John Lilly filling in for Nick Reed, who's taking a few days off this week. This is Springfield's Talk 104.1. I'm going to have some fun today. I'm going to be talking about several different things. I'm going to start off talking about masks and what they do and what they don't do. Because I know there were a lot of people that were very frustrated having to wear masks during COVID. And now we get people that they wear them, they still wear them. Because I guess they think they're protecting themselves. I'm going to talk about uh, Donald Trump being off the primary ballot in Colorado. I think this is actually something good. Uh, I'm also going to talk about a little bit about Social Security. And later this hour, we're going to have a U.S. Citizens Naturalization question call-in. There are 100 questions on the U.S. Citizens Naturalization test. And they give you the answers. You can look them up online. And what you have to do is they ask you 10 questions. You have to get six of them right. So... Later on, we're gonna, I'm going to see if anybody wants to call in and give a try at answering 10 random questions from this 100-question uh, test. We'll see how good you can do. I thought that would be interesting. Later on, I'm going to talk about, or I'm going to read some of my early newsletter columns. But right now, we're going to go to the news from Color 10 and Fox 49. Here is the KTTS First Alert forecast from Color 10, Fox 49, meteorologist Tom Schmidt. Today, mostly cloudy with a 50-50 chance of light snow high of 35. Tonight, a 40% chance of snow with minor accumulations and a low of 30. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a chance of sprinkles and flurries throughout the day, high of 39. And Friday, mostly cloudy with a high of 40. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk about this morning was masks. You know, what is it about masks? You know, they are used a lot in surgery, which is typical, but there are different types of masks that do different things. So I looked up some information from OSHA, and it says, and this is back from 2009, but it's still on the OSHA fact sheet on masks says, surgical masks are used as a physical barrier to protect the user from hazardous uh, hazards such as splashes or large droplets of blood or bodily fluids. Surgical masks are not designed or certified to prevent the inhalation of small airborne contaminants. And that is the whole problem with surgical masks. They do not conform to the face. There are other masks called N95 masks. They're also 
uh, P2 uh, masks. They are similar. They are meant to conform more to the face. When I was in the Cox residency program, we were given an N95 mask. And it has to be, one of the things that you have to do is you have to have somebody fit it properly. What they do is you, there's a little, at the bridge of the nose, there's a little piece of metal. So you have to bend that metal to make sure it goes around your nose and stays next to the skin. And this should make a continuous seal all the way around your face. And you can't have any facial hair. Uh, if you have a mustache, that's okay because it's going to be small enough that the mask will go completely around it. But you can't have a beard because that would interrupt the, uh, the, the restraint of the edge of the mask. How they, may, how they fit that is you put on a hood and then they squirt some very... Uh, it's actually, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's very sweet. And your tongue, your tongue can taste it. So they squirt it in this little hood and then have you breathe normally. If you can taste the sweetness, then your mask is not properly fitted. So they keep doing this over and over until you get your mask properly fitted. Once you get the mask properly fitted, then you're good. But those masks are not forever. They will only, they're essentially a single-use mask. After one day, you have to throw it away and get a new mask. One, it's going to get some humidity to it. Uh, and two, the seal is going to change. So these are, are masks that work on particles. And I'll get to the difference between particles and uh, aerosols in a minute, but the <clears throat> there is an OSHA hospital respiratory protection program toolkit that has all kinds of information in it, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes right after these commercials. This is KSGF Mornings with Nick Reed. I'm not Nick Reed. I'm Dr. John Lilly filling in for Nick Reed, who's taking a few days off. You're listening to Springfield's Talk 104.1. I have been going over some information about masks and respirators. One of the things that you have to understand is how big is the particle that is floating around in the air. There are two types of particles. One is called an aerosol. It is less than 10 microns in size. Viruses are small enough that they can be transmitted on aerosols. Aerosols are so small that they can float around in the air for hours and hours. They do not settle out. The other part of the other classification is particles. Particles are greater than 10 microns, and those 
more usually have bacteria attached to them. Those are heavy enough that given time, one, two, three, four hours, those will settle out of the room air and will come to rest on some surface, the, uh, the floor, a table, whatever surface it comes to rest on. So that's the difference between aerosols and particles and what can transmit a virus and what can transmit a bacteria. The surgical masks that a lot of people wear, those have so many gaps in them and the aerosols and some of the small particles can even go right through the mask. So those are not really meant to be protecting you from some infectious agent. The purpose of the face mask when it's worn by a healthcare personnel uh, is twofold. As part of the droplet precautions, the surgical mask is worn to protect the wearer from large droplets or sprays of infectious fluids from patients that otherwise could be directly transmitted to the mucous membranes in the wearer's nose or mouth. In other instances, a face mask is worn by healthcare personnel to protect patients by reducing the large droplets and infectious agents the wearer could introduce into the room by talking, sneezing, or coughing. This protection is especially important where sterile fields must be maintained, such as in operating rooms. <clears throat> so the reason everybody in an operating room wears a surgical mask is not for protection for them, it's protection for the patient. So if they cough or sneeze, you don't want to get little droplets into the sterile field where you're doing the operation. There is also a purpose for uh, face masks when it's worn by the patient. It's to keep those people that have some illness like uh, influenza or tuberculosis, it reduces the large particles that they can expel by talking, sneezing, coughing. So it limits that concentration of those particles that get into the room. Face masks by design do not seal tightly to the wearer's face. For that, you have to have a respirator. When I was in medical school, one of the anatomy professors had a reaction to the embalming fluid that we used, uh, that was used in the cadavers. So when he was in the cadaver lab, he had to wear a respirator, which is a face shield with a plastic or rubber seal that goes all the way around the face and has some type of filtering device built into it so that you can exhale and inhale and it will filter out uh, the particles and aerosols, which made it hard for him to communicate sometimes and he had to use a microphone <clears throat> most of the time. But it did a very good job in uh, protecting him from all the... Uh, the stuff that was in the, the cadaver lab, and especially the uh, cadaver, uh, the embalming fluid 
that he had a reaction to. And we're going to continue talking about masks right after this commercial break. This is KSGF Mornings with Nick Reed. I'm Dr. John Lilly filling in for Nick Reed, who is taking a few days off. I've been talking about masks and the different types of masks. The plain face mask uh, that people wear a lot, that we wore a lot when COVID was raging. There are also uh, N95 masks, and then there are surgical respirators, and those have increasing levels of filtering. And you really got to get to the surgical respirator to completely filter out aerosols that transmit uh, viruses. Now, what is the evidence of the reliability of face masks? Well, if you want to know something, something medical, you go to the Cochrane Library. It's the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews. And they looked at masks. And when they did look at medical and surgical masks compared to no masks, they looked through a lot of randomized controlled trials. And this is the Cochrane Library is the gold standard for what is medically acceptable and not acceptable. When they looked at the, the medical and surgical masks, they included 12 trials, 10 cluster randomly controlled trials, comparing medical surgical masks versus no mask to prevent the spread of viral respiratory illnesses. Wearing masks in the community probably makes little or no difference uh, to the outcome of influenza-like viruses uh, and like COVID. Uh, wearing a mask in the community probably makes little or no difference in the outcome of laboratory-confirmed influenza or COVID-19 compared to wearing no masks. So what they do, they pooled 12 tri the trials comparing the N95 or P2, which are similar, respirators with medical or surgical masks. They also, these were... Uh, a total of 7,779 participants, but there was a very low certainty of the evidence. They also looked at hand hygiene compared to control, and they found 19 trials comparing hand hygiene interventions with controls was sufficient uh, to include in the meta-analysis. So they, they pool these trials together and look at what is the result of, if these trials were all done together, what would be the result? And the author's conclusions was, the high risk, there was a high risk of bias in the trials, with variation in outcome measurement and relatively low adherence with the interventions during the studies, hampers drawing firm conclusions. There were additional randomly controlled trials during the pandemic related to physical interventions, but a relative paucity uh, given the importance of the question of masking and its relative effectiveness 
and the concomitant measurement measures of mask adherence, which would be rel- highly relevant to the measurements of effectiveness, especially in the elderly and young children. There is uncertainty about the face, the effects of mask, face masks. Uh, the low to moderate certainty of evidence means our confidence on the effect of, of estimate is limited, and the true effect may be different from the observed estimated effect. The pooled results of the randomly controlled trials did not show a clear reduction in respiratory viral infection with use of face or surgical masks. There was no clear difference of medical or surgical masks compared with N95 respirators in healthcare workers when used in routine care to reduce respiratory viral infections. So, what they they concluded was we really need a large, well-designed, randomly controlled test to decide do these face masks work. But what they have found so far is there is no obvious evidence that face masks or surgical masks, like the N95 mask, are protective against viral illnesses like COVID-19. So this was, again, this, it makes common sense but a lot of people still think, oh, that must give me some protection. When you really think about it, it doesn't. There's too many gaps in the mask, and even the N95 does not protect against direct aerosols going through the mask. We are going to take a break at the bottom of the hour for some more commercial messages. This is KSGF Mornings with Nick Reed. I am Dr. John Lilly filling in for Nick Reed, who is taking a few days off this week, a well-deserved break. Uh, We're going to switch the topics, and I'm going to talk about Donald Trump getting thrown off the Colorado primary ballot and why that might be good. It has gone to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, said, oh, we're not going to make a decision yet. It's going to be March before we think about taking, taking on this case, which is actually a good thing. And I heard somebody in the Colorado GOP say, you know, we might have to use some other method in picking the presidential candidate if they are not going to let Trump be on the ballot. And I said, great. Now, one of the things that I don't like about primary elections is I'm paying for it. Primary elections is a private organization, Republican Party, Democrat Party, Constitutional Party, Libertarian Party, Green Party, whatever party, All of these are private organizations. And when the state has and pays for a primary election, it is making me pay for something that a private organization should be paying for. Now, when it comes to the general election, 
obviously the state has to pay for that because they are determining who is going to be in the elected office. But each individual organization being a private entity, they should pay for how they pick their candidate that goes on the general election ballot. And this year, the Republicans are having to do caucuses. And it starts at a county caucus level and then goes to a uh, district, a congressional district level, and then finally to the state level. And that is something where the individual counties, congressional districts, and the state GOP, they have to find places where they can meet. They have to uh, get their respective uh, citizens that are affiliated with their party to that caucus and then go through the process of finding delegates that go to the next stage. At the local caucus level, they pick delegates to go to the congressional district. Congressional district, they pick delegates to go to the state district uh, or the state uh, convention. So this is one where the private organization is paying for choosing who is going to be on the general election ballot, which is the way it should be. I would like to see, right now, Missouri has open elections. So you can go in and they ask you, which ballot do you want in the primary election? And you can pick any of them. I would like to see them, and now you can register with a party, and I would like to see that done two, three, four, five, maybe even six months before the election. You have to register with a party, and that's the ballot that you will get when you go into the primary election. If not, you get the unaffiliated ballot that is not going to have any candidates on it, if there's any issues or uh, other ballot measures, that's going to be on there, but there's not going to be any candidates on it because the primary election is just for the parties to pick who is going to be on the general election ballot. So that's why I think having Donald Trump go to the Supreme Court and if, the, if this gets delayed long enough, Colorado may decide, the Republican Party may decide, we're not going to participate in the primary election. We're going to have a caucus so that then we can get all of the candidates that we want on the caucus ballot and we, get, we are in charge of picking the candidate which is the way it should be. So I would love to see Missouri handle this. A couple years ago, they changed the uh, ballot, or they introduced a bill so that you could register as Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Congressional, whatever party that you wanted. And I would like to see them go to closed primaries. Even better go to caucuses for all of the elected officials. 
everyone in, in the county, from the school board, you know, on up to the president of the United States. I think they should all be picked for the general election by caucuses. So we're going to talk, uh, coming up, we're coming up on a break. Uh, after that, we're going to talk a little bit about Social Security. And then I want to get to the U.S. Citizens Naturalization questions. And I'm going to see if anybody wants to call in and see if they can answer the naturalization questions. So we're going to be doing that in the next hour. So stay tuned for the continuing radio program after these messages. This is KSGF Mornings with Nick Reed. I'm Dr. John Lilly filling in for Nick Reed, who is taking a few days off. Uh, I know Darren Chappell is going to be in tomorrow, so I always enjoy uh, listening to him on the radio. Uh, if you want to call or text, call the American Transmissions Talk and Text Line number is 447-5743. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Social Security, and then I want to get to the U.S. Citizens Naturalization Questions. I looked these up, and I was just fascinated by how easy they are. So if I'm going to have uh, or ask for listeners to call in, and I'm going to give you the, que the questions that they give uh, immigrants that are coming into the country. So call in in a few minutes, 447-5743. We're going to talk a little bit about Social Security. And the big question is, is there a right to Social Security? You pay in, once you start working, you pay into Social Security every day that you go to work. Part of that money goes to the Social Security Trust Fund. And years ago, I think it was back in the 70s, Congress decided, wait a minute, it's building up such a surplus and we're running a deficit why don't we just borrow money from the Social Security Trust Fund? So they started put they started a unified, essentially a unified budget where the federal spending uh, was not completely separated from Social Security. So what they started doing was giving Social Security IOUs and taking the surplus from the Social Security Trust Fund. So they've been doing this for years. So now Social Security is starting to run out of money, or they will in the near future, and all they've got is a bunch of IOUs. There is no lockbox that, that has your money in it. But back when Social Security started, there were way more people putting money into Social Security than taking it out. And a lot of people, because they sold this as insurance. You're putting in money to get money back after you retire. So a lot of people believed that Social Security was an earned right. They think because they have paid Social Security taxes, they are entitled to receive Social Security benefits. 
The government encourages that belief by referring to Social Security taxes as contributions, as in the Federal Insurance Contribution Act. However, in the 1960s, there was a case that went before the U.S. Supreme Court. It was called Fleming v. Nestor, and the Supreme Court ruled that the workers have no legally binding contractual rights to their Social Security benefits, that those benefits can be cut or even eliminated at any time. Uh, Ephraim Nestor was a Bulgarian immigrant who came to the United States in 1918. He paid Social Security taxes uh, from 1936, uh, the year the system began operating, up until he retired in 1955. A year after he retired, Nestor was deported for having been a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s. In 1945, Congress passed a law stating that any person deported from the United States should lose his Social Security benefits. Accordingly, Nestor's $55.60 per month Social Security checks were stopped. Nestor sued, claiming that because he has paid Social Security taxes, he had a right to Social Security benefits. The Supreme Court disagreed, saying it grafted upon the Social Security system a concept of accrued property rights, which depraved it of the flexibility and boldness in adjusting it in an ever-changing environment and changing conditions. The court went on to say it is apparent that the non-contractual interest in an employee covered by the Social Security Act cannot be soundly analogized to that of a holder of an annuity whose rights to benefits is bottomed on his contractual premium payments. So, Social Security is not an insurance program at all. It is simply a payroll tax on one side and a welfare program on the other. Your Social Security benefits are always subject to the whim of 535 politicians. So the court's decision was not surprising. They had made some decisions before that that were leaning this way. But this was, uh, Fleming versus Nestor was the court decision that said, no, what you What comes into the Social Security Administration in taxes is completely different than what goes out. And no one has a right to the money that they have put into the program. So we're going to talk a little about U.S. citizenship questions on the naturalization test uh, when we come back after these messages. Oh, Christmas music. Still have Christmas music for bumper music. That's okay. This is KSGF Mornings with Nick Reed. I'm Dr. John Lilly filling in for Nick Reed, who is taking a few days off, as he usually does at the end of the year between Christmas and New Year's. I was curious about U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services naturalization questions. I pulled this off of the, um, the website. And a couple years ago, they had a big to-do about changing some of the questions. And I looked at the questions before and after, and they were exactly the same. So they didn't change anything. Now, what I'd like to do is 
have a caller call in and let me give you the quiz. What you have to do, there are a hundred questions and the uh, USCIS officer asks the applicant up to 10 of the 100 questions, you have to get correct 6 out of the 10 to pass. So if you want to call in, it is the American Transmissions Talk and Text Line 447-5743. So if you want to give this a try, see how you do, call in to 447-5743. I'm going to go through some of these so you can kind of get an idea. Um, I'm going to go through the first question, do like 1, 11, 21, 23, all that. Here we go. The first one was, was, what is the supreme law of the land? The answer is the Constitution. 11 is, what is the economic system in the United States? And the answer can be either capitalist economy or market economy. 21. The House of Representatives has how many voting members? The answer is 435. 31. If both the, vice pres the president and the vice president can no longer serve, who becomes president? The answer is the Speaker of the House, who is the third in line for the presidency. 41. Under our Constitution, some powers belong to the federal government. What is one power of the federal government? The answers can be to print money, to declare war, to create an army, to make treaties. See, this isn't too tough. What are two rights of everyone living in the United States? The correct answers could be freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to petition a government, freedom of religion, and the right to bear arms. So if you want to get a, give a crack at uh, seeing if you can pass the citizenship test, use the American Transmissions Talk and Text Line 447-5743. Call in and we'll see how you do. Number 61, what did the colonists fight? Why did the colonists fight the British? Some of the correct answers are because of high taxes, taxation without representation, because the British army stayed in their homes, bordering and quartering, and because they didn't have self-government. 71, what territory did the United States buy from France in 1803? The Louisiana Territory is the answer. 81. Who did the United States fight in World War II? The answers, Japan, Germany, and Italy. I thought we had somebody that, I guess not. Name one U.S. territory. The correct answers are Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, Northern Mariana Islands, and Guam. 
So that is 10 of the questions that are on the 100-question test. Ooh, we might have a caller that's calling in to give a try at... Yes, we do. And, yes, caller? Hello, how are you? Yes, just fine. How are you doing? Oh, it's early morning. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to go through ten questions. Again, We'll see, let's see how you do. Okay. Okay. Question number one. What is an amendment? Specifies what, what you're able to do and what the laws are for limitations, such as uh, carrying guns, like that. Okay. It's a, a ch- that's good enough. Change to the Constitution or addition to the Constitution. you got to think simple, simple answers. What stops one branch of government from becoming too powerful? The branch of America can go back and re-vote for what they voted for. Pretty close. The two answers they give are checks and balances and separation of powers. Uh, Who does a U.S. senator represent? Represents the area that he was voted in and the region to the United States to defend our area. Close. He represents all the people of the state, which is interesting because in the original Constitution, it was the state legislator that picked the senators. And they got lazy and said, no, we don't want to do it. We'll leave it up to a vote of the people. So now the senators represent the people, which is what the House of Representatives is supposed to do. So... Try another one. Uh, what is the capital of your state? Do you know the capital of Missouri? Jefferson City. Correct. Uh, how old do citizens have to be to vote for the president? 18. Correct. See, you're on a roll now. <laughs> there were 13 original states. Name three of them. New York, Delaware, and Massachusetts. Correct. We're coming up on a hard break. We got time for another question? Okay. Uh, Name one problem that led to the Civil War. Had to do with the manufacturing companies yeah economic. Uh, wanted, wanted to take over yeah economic reasons that's yes. good well we are running out of time and we're coming up a hard break you did pretty good so without even looking at the answers so thank you for calling in and we're now going to the top of the hour break 